Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this moment we have, knowing that as we hold your word, as it's just been read to us, we know you've spoken to us. So may we have ears to hear and that your Holy Spirit will be transforming us, drawing us closer to you. And we hold on to the promise that your word never returns to you empty. Amen. Expectations are important to get right because they impact a lot. You take the engaged couple. Their expectations are high. They're thinking marriage, going to be blissful, no arguments, we'll finish each other's sentences. But if we're married for more than five minutes, you know that's not the case. High expectations. Then there's also low expectations, right? I have low expectations every time I go into a movie. I think this is going to be the worst movie ever. And by the end of it, I'm presently surprised. Pitch Perfect 3, not that bad, right? (laughs) But there's only so many times you can fool yourself, right? Expectations are important to understand. Last night, the election was a night of expectations, wasn't it? Labor headquarters. Expectations were high, and when they came crashing down, crushed. Liberal headquarters, low expectations. When they heard the news, they were just shocked, like deer in a headlight. Expectations are important to understand. Let me ask you this. What are your expectations of the Christian life? What are you thinking it should be like? Cruise ship? Easy, carefree, a sinking ship, stressful, on edge, somewhere in between. In Nehemiah 4, it's all about getting your expectations right in following God. That when you're doing God's work, expect opposition to come. Expect criticism to come. Expect conflict. So as we explore this chapter 4 of Nehemiah, we're going to look at two things really. What to expect and how to react to it. Let me give you up to speed with the story. Nehemiah is a man who's left his cushy job in Persia to go rebuild the walls around his city, the city of his people, Jerusalem. He takes the risk in asking his boss, King Artaxerxes, to fund the wall, and permission to go. After much prayer, he, he asks, and King Azerxes bless him, and he goes. And with the people, the Jewish people, they start rebuilding the wall, bit, brick by brick. But here's the thing. When you're doing God's work, opposition is not that far behind. Enter Sambalat. Have a look. Chapter 4 of Nehemiah, page 4.14. Verse 1. When Sambalat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. Sambalat gets wind that the restoration is happening, right? And he is fuming. So he starts verbally attacking them. Verse 2, he asks a number of questions. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall, their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? <laughs> Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? These questions have a way of weaseling into your head and sticking there. Because as 
Sanballat throws each question into the Jewish people. They, whether consciously or unconsciously, are answering each of those questions, aren't they? What are these feeble Jews doing? What are we doing? Will they restore the what? No. Will they offer it? No. Will they fit? No. The purpose of this was to crush them, crush their optimism, crush their confidence, crush their ambition. You won't get questions like this as a Christian, but you'll get different other, other types of questions. Like, are you still a Christian? Isn't it time to grow up? It's 2019. Why do you believe the Bible? Do you enjoy being a bigot? Questions where the goal is to crush you, your optimism, your ambition, your confidence. Tobiah, his mate, jumps in. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up upon it would break it down with their walls of stone. The modern-day equivalent would be, if a butterfly landed, it would break instantly. Now, I love humor, right? I I love a good joke. But cheer can be a dangerous weapon. Every one of us has been at the butt end of a joke. And you can remember it as if it was yesterday. And it just demoralizes you. You know, I've been thinking this week, what would it be like to be building that wall, building the gates, as an Israelite there? Because remember, they're not building the temple. They're not building the city. They're building the walls and the gates around it. The temple, the city, that's already been built. They're building the walls. And yet these insults are coming. And in chapter 3, there's different types of gates with their building. Some are building the fish gate, the horse gate. But some are building the dung gate. Now, that doesn't sound very exciting, does it? Building the dung gate. But that is what some of them are doing. And imagine as they're being made fun of, teasing and thinking, we're building a dung gate. We're not even building the temple. But here's the thing. You cannot choose what people make fun of you of doing God's work. For me, I would like to be made fun of the love of God. If you're going to oppose me, make it on the Trinity, on the cross of Christ, right? But you can't choose. My wife and I, I remember a time when I would tease for not having sex before marriage, right? I remember times in university where I was the butt end of number of jokes. I remembered recently because... Uh, we got introduced to a distant family member of ours who we had never met. And I uh, introduced myself, I'm James, this is Charlotte. Said, oh, you're the couple that didn't have sex before marriage. It's like, oh, nice to meet you too, right? Very interesting introduction. But I did highlight my three kids and say, we have had prior, but anyway. <laughs> that's not the thing I wanted to be known for, right, as a Christian. But you can't choose it. People will make fun of you in all sorts of ways as a Christian. You'll be at the butt end of jokes. You'll be mocked. You'll be teased. Do you expect it? Now, if you're anything like me, you're probably thinking, yes, but if I'm a loving person, if I'm nice, if I listen well, I shouldn't really expect all that much opposition. You know, I shouldn't really have enemies. The problem with that kind of thinking is Jesus Christ was the most loving person who walked this planet. 
He was perfect, in fact. And yet he experienced more opposition than you and I will ever. The equation, if I'm more loving, equals less opposition, breaks down when it comes to Jesus. Because having enemies is not the problem. It's having enemies for the right reasons. Don't have enemies because you're rude or unloving or unkind, right? Do have enemies because you stand for truth. Because you don't compromise when it comes to God's word. After all, Jesus did. So how do you respond? That's the question. How do you respond to when jokes, when verbal attacks like this come your way? Uh, when we were about to get married, my wife and I did a pre-marriage course where they got you to think about what conflict animal are you? It's a very helpful thing to do, to try and find out when conflict comes your way, how do you respond? And they categorize it various animals. So some of them, crash course, quick crash course, some of you are turtles, right? When conflict comes, you just hide. Others of you are more like teddy bear. You sort of hug it out, right? Like peace, not war. You just, oh, let's just be friends, right? Now, if that's you, and it's very helpful, if you want to grow up in this world, it's good to understand how you naturally react. If that's you, the danger is when conflict comes, you have a tendency to be the doormat, to say, oh, well, that's life, and just move it on, dismiss it. Others of us, right, are more the bull. You take conflict head on. What you call me, well, you're up, boom. Or some of us are more like foxes. We look for inconsistencies in what they say, right? We go around the back door. Nehemiah, when conflict comes his way, what does he do? He prays. Verse 4. Hear us, our God, for we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now that is a raw prayer. I don't think he chooses his words carefully. Now before you judge him, right? Think, where's the love your enemies bit here? Where's the forgiveness here? Right? You've read your New Testament. Nehemiah hasn't. But Nehemiah in this prayer tells us two things that are important. He doesn't dismiss the hurt and the insults. Whether he's a turtle or a teddy bear, he acknowledges what was said against him and the builders was wrong and not acceptable. But yet, he says to those of us who are bulls and foxes, Don't retaliate. Notice he gives it to God. In praying, he says, God, you're the judge. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to bite back. And he gives it to a higher court. No matter your conflict style, right? Prayer is something we all should do. And because we're New Testament people, we add one more in. The prayer that Jesus prayed when they teased him on that cross. Father, forgive them but they don't know what they're doing. So that's kind of the first round, right? There's a second round. Because the attacks don't start, stop with just words. Have a look, verse 7. But when Samblat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod, notice it's getting bigger, heard 
that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being, were being closed, they were, what, very angry. If words don't work, maybe the fist will. So they threaten with physical violence and harassment. Now, here's the thing. When a threat like this looms, it affects everything. There's no wonder, verse 10, the people of Judah say, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is no, so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. There are days when you just want to give up. Why? Because verse 11, your enemies tell you to give up. And what makes it worse is verse 12, those who are close to you, who should be on your side, tell you to give up. Not once, but notice, ten times over. And you feel deflated, and you feel defeated, and you feel down. That's your question. What's the ultimate goal of Sam Blatt and Tobiah? What's their ultimate goal? Is it to kill them? Is it to hurt them? Is it to make fun of them? No. It's to get them to stop. Stop building. Stop fixing. Stop restoring. This overwhelming pressure of change or die. As a Christian, right? As a follower of Jesus, what is the goal of the Sandblatt to buy equivalents in your life? Is it to kill you? To hurt you? To mock you? No, no. It's to get you to stop. Stop believing. Stop speaking. Stop being so dedicated. Stop serving. This overwhelming pressure to change or die. Now, here's the thing, right? If Nehemiah and God's people listened to their enemy's voice, if they stopped, it would endanger the lives of their people, the welfare of the Jewish people, and it would ultimately dishonor God. And here's the thing, right? We have this overwhelming pressure as Christians to change, to change what we believe about the Bible. We're told, you know, if you give up on what the Bible says, particularly certain parts, then more people will come, right? And there's this pressure that I presume you feel. But this week I read an article which caught my eye. A guy called Glenn Stanton highlighted some research done by Harvard University, which went like this. They found that churches and denominations that changed what they believed about the Bible and traditional teaching to have a socially accepted message are declining severely, if not dead. But churches that took the Bible as the reliable word of God, word of God are doing very well. And that research matches the research in, in this country. That if we gave in to what our opposers say and just threw this to the side or sit very loosely to it, Guaranteed, this church will go from five services to one within a couple of years. The article went on to highlight one issue, another issue, changes, changing views on sexuality. They said, the University of Columbia and the University of California came together to do, find out 
where gay and lesbian identified people went to church. And they found this. They were 2.5 times more likely to attend churches that had a more conservative view on Christianity, including homosexuality, than so-called welcoming and affirming churches. See, if we change what we believe, not only do we decline and if not die, but we become less welcoming. Be careful to listen to the words of your oppressor. It may seem good at first, but it can be a death sentence. In this pressure that they feel, pressure we feel, what do we do? Three things, I think. Notice verse 9, Nehemiah prays to our God. Now, if you think this is just stuck on repeat, right? Prayer, prayer, prayer. You're getting the idea. Nehemiah is a book about prayer. He just prays. But notice also, too, that verse 9, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Nehemiah is not passive. Prayer is not an excuse for inaction, right? No, no, no. He's very proactively about protecting his people. And so verse 16 says, from that day on, they were ready for opposition. They were prepared. So he sets up a a shift system where some had weapons on guard and some were building. Some had a weapon in hand and a shovel in the other. Uh, Some had trumpets alerting of danger and they would go there and fight. Even when they had a drink, they were ready, on guard. Now, as Christians, right, I wouldn't recommend bringing a sword with you to work, right? You're not going to get far on the train if you bring an axe to you. I'm a Christian. All right, cool. You're arrested, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. But you and I, as Christians, still need to prepare. Up until recently, Australian Christians, particularly Australian white Christians, have the persecuted free lifestyle in this country. According to Jesus, that's strange. Now, I don't know about you, but recent talk about freedom of religion and Christian rights and all, all that kind of thing, I don't know whether it's white guilt or Christian guilt, whatever. but I just put my head in the sand hoping to just go away, right? Just a bit awkward and just, okay, cool, move on. But have a look at the reason why Nehemiah tells his people to be proactive. Verse 14, fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Why they need to be on guard is not just for themselves, no, 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 but for others, particularly the next generation. Though we may not feel any effects of religious freedom squashing, our children and their children and their children will. And just like we want to create a better environmental climate for the next generation and be proactive on climate change. We also want to create a better freedom of religion climate for the next generation and the generation comes to that. We shouldn't put our head in the sand, but be proactive and prepare. But as Nehemiah and the people prepare, they have a confidence, right, that goes deeper than their own plans. Is the third and final thing. They, They have perspective. Nehemiah gets up, right, and reminds his people of one thing. Verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord 
who is great and awesome. There's a book which I highly recommend called When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. Great book. The title really says it all. Sambalat and Tobiah, though they're not Persia, seem so big to Nehemiah and the people of Israel. And there are people in your life who seem so big and you're afraid of them. They probably don't know it, but you're really scared of what they think, what they might say, what they might do. But Nehemiah wants us to remember God is bigger. When I was in year one, uh, we were told, as a year one class, stop putting dirt down the drain. That was sort of a thing we did. And, and so we were told that quite clearly, right? Not so much going on when you're new one. But I had a friend, Nathan, who's a bit bigger than me, and I really want him to be my friend. And so he said, come on, James, let's put dirt down the drain. And so there we were putting dirt down the drain when this shadow appeared over us. And I looked up, and there was Mrs. Winter. Now, when you're in new one, everyone's big, right? But Mrs. Winter was particularly big, right? Very tall lady. And as I looked up at her, in an instant, I realized Nathan may be big. Mrs. Winter, she's bigger. And there's people in your life where you think, oh, they're big. But remember, God is far bigger. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And notice when the trumpets come, verse 20, they knew one thing. Our God will fight for us. This morning my uh, daughter came home with a kid's craft that they made and there's a bit of a typo in it. She came home with a shield which said, our God will fight us. I forgot the word for... I don't know what they were teaching, but they do a good job, good job. But that word for is an important one. Our God will fight for us. Now we say, because we're New Testament people, Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? But here's the thing. You might be thinking, what makes you so special to say something like that? Our God will fight for us. What makes you so special? You know what it is? Nothing. I mean, you think about it. Where have Nehemiah and the people of God been prior to this? They were in exile. They were there because they rejected God. Where were you and I before we were a child of God? We were enemies of God, hostile to him. Our natural default is to do to God what people do to us as Christians. Mock, insult, roll their eyes at, ignore. And because of that, that is the very reason why Jesus came. That God entered this world that would attack him left, right and center. See, every Christian is a former enemy, an ex-mocker, a used-to-be hater of Jesus Christ. Have a look at 1 Peter. That was the second reading. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1048. And have a look at these beautiful words of what Jesus did to us who by nature oppose him. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. See, how you know God is for us is because Jesus died for us when we were sinners, opposing God. And he invites anyone in that category, which is all of us, like a sheep, to come back. Knowing that you're forgiven, that you've been healed. But Peter, notice, wants you to get the right expectations of what it means to come back. Verse 21, he says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. What are those steps? He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted to him who judges justly. You know that saying you might hear, it's not you, it's me? It often gets said at a breakup. When it's said, deep down you think, it is me, isn't it? It was my bad breath, my love of ABBA music. Like, well, what is it about me? Right? You don't believe the person when they say, it's not you, it's me. But Jesus, when it comes to following him, is the only one to say, when you experience opposition, it is truly not you, it's me. Because if they hate you, remember that they first hated Jesus Christ. If you get an insult coming your way, it's because they hurled them at Jesus Christ. If you experience any suffering for following God, it's because Jesus experienced a truckload of suffering for following his Father. Following Jesus will bring opposition. And the closer you are to him, the more you're serving his church, the more you're following the word of God, the more opposition will come. Having the right expectations is important, isn't it? Life as a Christian it ain't a P&O cruise. But it's also not a sinking ship. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? We're going to watch a, a testimony, a video of someone in our church, Joel, and hear his experience, him and his family's experience of opposition and following Christ here in Sydney. Have a look at the screen. My parents came to faith when I was five. Um, growing up, I've seen them firsthand withstand strong opposition for the sake of Jesus. And as a Polynesian, as an islander, family means everything. And my parents, they grew up going to church every week. And then one time, one of my dad's colleagues invited him to his Samoan church. Um, and my parents visited once and they were overjoyed. I think they felt like they finally found like could feel this void in their heart and it was Jesus. But immediately after that, we faced opposition from our own family. Um, they saw the change in my parents. They living their distinct lives. They were full of zeal for this Jesus guy. Um, and they did not like this. 
So they ridiculed them, insulted them, called them angels. I look at them trying to be holy and stuff, and trying to discourage them from going to this new church. But my parents stood strong in the midst of that and persevered through their insults and scorn. Um, one time, I was five years old, um, they invited us over for a family barbecue, and I tagged along with them. But I still vividly remember this. One of my aunties took me into another room and my parents into another. And then I started hearing loud noises and screaming. It was an ambush. My parents were being beat up in the next room whilst I was playing with my toys in the next one. I didn't know at the time that this was happening, but a few years later, I asked my parents, you know, how did you feel? Were you scared? Did you want to back away from Jesus at that time? And they replied, not at all. They were actually full of joy in that moment. They were actually praising the Lord whilst their own brothers and sisters were beating them up. And I've never told them this, but they are my heroes in the faith to encourage me to stand firm for Jesus despite opposition and discouragements because Jesus is worth giving up everything. We've got a question uh, here. I might have time for one more. We'll send it through. Here's a question uh, which I'm not surprised has been asked. How can we as Christians respond to the Israel Falau events? One islander to the next, I guess. Why, how can we respond to Israel Falau events? A couple of things. In Ephesians, it says, uh, speak the truth in love. Now, depending on who you are, some of you highlight the truth part, some of you highlight the love part, right? Israel Falau is probably a guy who highlights the truth part. What he's said in terms of the memes, uh, uh, he's at times quoting the Bible, sometimes paraphrasing the Bible. It may be true, and I think it is true, actually. But it does lack that love, it does lack the hope. I mean, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else, right? But he also spoke about salvation from hell. So when it comes to his memes, I would, I would well, I'd firstly say memes are not great when it comes uh, to interacting with people who are not people of faith, right? This is a general rule. If that's your only evangelism, it's through a meme. That's not great evangelism, right? So I'd say he, he does, there's an immaturity there and a, and a lack of wisdom, But in saying that right, the worst thing you can do as a Christian to another Christian like Israel is to demonize him. When a Christian's turn against him because he's done something that you may not have done like that and you may want to encourage him to speak truth and love and don't demonize him because he's a brother. And it was shocking in Nehemiah 4 when fellow Jews had to go at Nehemiah building a wall 10 times over Though you may disagree with the way he's gone about it, don't demonize him, right? But I'll say one other thing. I think this case with Israel for now is not so much a test for Christians, but I think it's a test for the progressive Western uh, secular agenda because that worldview is all about diversity. That is one of the key beliefs, diversity. But it's exposing what that diversity looks like. It's diversity where... The, you like, they like a different color skin or people eat a different type of food. But when it comes to the beliefs, 
You actually must believe what they believe in their worldview. Now that's exposing a superficial diversity, not a genuine diversity of can you have people who have different views that say on what marriage is. So I would say it is exposing, probably helpfully so, this complexity that we're in. Are we going to be a true multicultural society? Are we going to be a pluralistic society? Can we live with one another? The word tolerant comes with the word to bear with one another. Can we truly bear with one another in society? Just a couple of thoughts on that. One more question. How do you practically do something about Christian freedom? Pray for your politicians. Pray for lobby groups. Secondly, speak to them. Talk to them. Send them emails. Because those who are in power will influence a lot, right? And so no matter your political swing, either way, whatever who you voted for yesterday, it's actually important to have a voice and say that this is an important thing. Because they listen to you. Right? The beautiful thing about living in a democracy is they will go where we as a people want us to go. And if us as Christians we go silent, they're just going to say, well, you didn't say anything. Right? So one of the practical things is actually contacting your local member and saying, as a Christian, this is what I'm worried about and this is what I'd like to see. Not just for you as Christians, but for other faiths as well. To have the freedom to not only have a faith, but express that faith. Pray as well. I'm going to pray right now and then we're going to sing. Gracious Lord, we come to you now knowing that you are for us, that you love us, but you do call us to carry our cross in following you. We don't know what the future holds, we don't even know what tomorrow will bring, Lord, but we pray knowing that we should expect opposition because you, Lord Jesus, were opposed all the time when you walked on this planet. We ask, Lord, that we would live such good lives among those who do not know you. We ask, Lord, that we would be loving and careful, but we would also stand for your word, stand for your kingdom, stand for you, Lord Jesus. And in those times when we experience opposition, we're at the butt end of a joke. May we come to you in prayer. May we prepare for opposition. May we get perspective that you, Lord God, are bigger, so much bigger than those who are in front of us. Yes, we pray. In your name, Jesus. Amen.